So yesterday, I met a woman who was telling me about 20-some years ago, she got married, and for their honeymoon, they came here to the Lake Junaluska camp meeting. Now that is impressive. I gotta say, there are not very many camp meetings that can boast of being honeymoonable, but yours is one of them. It is a destination, honeymoon. And she told me they've been coming every year since. Um, This morning, looking out the window from my room at the lake, I was texting my wife saying, it is just beauty beyond believable. Uh, And it's true, isn't it? Such a blessing uh, to get to hang out with all of you good saints this week, wrestling through some difficult questions together. Yesterday, we asked the question, so are we just talking to ourselves? Or are we really impacting the world for God? Today, we continue with some challenging questions. I'm wondering aloud, are we on mission? Or as a denomination, are we drifting? I wonder if we as a church were to start faltering and ultimately fail, what would cause our ultimate demise? What is it, do you think, could ultimately threaten our very existence as a church? Just for fun, turn to the person next to you and share the first thing that comes to mind to answer that question. What could undo our denomination? Go ahead. Okay. Perhaps some of you suggested that it might be theological in nature. And you can see some of these potential answers listed there. I hope you got your outline. Uh, You can fill in some of the blanks and follow along in the texts that we are going to look at. But some of you maybe think that it would be doctrinal in nature. And that could, of course, derail us, but I'm not so sure. We take very seriously our doctrines. I believe they are well articulated. I believe they are absolutely biblical, the 28 fundamental beliefs, right? We even have organizations within our denomination who are tasked with safeguarding our doctrines. Organizations like the Biblical Research Institute. I don't think that we are ultimately threatened by our doctrinal beliefs. Others of you might have guessed, well, maybe it would be financial. Because I believe that God owns everything, that he is certainly capable of taking care of the financial needs of our denomination. I don't think it would be financial. I don't think that it is an organizational threat. We are very well organized as a denomination, right? We have conferences and unions and divisions and the general conference, very clearly structured. I'll tell you what I think it might be. What could perhaps ultimately undo our denomination might just be missional. In nature. Now, I know the word missional has gotten a bad rap 
through the years, but just hear me out. That is to say, perhaps our organization, our church, just gets derailed a little bit. We get fuzzy on what the bullseye looks like. We lose focus on where we're heading and what the ultimate mission from our founder, Jesus Christ, gave us. Because you get off degree from mission, just one or two degrees. You might think you're flying to Tokyo, but if you get off course just a little bit on your target, where you're going, you could end up in Sydney, Australia. Doesn't take much to undo everything. I think back some years ago, I was sitting in a traffic jam on the Beltway outside of Washington, D.C., in a rental car with all of the windows rolled down. It was a beautiful May afternoon when I heard this voice from outside, as if from on high. Looking out the passenger's side, I look up, and here is this man who was a dead ringer for William the Refrigerator Perry, the old football player. Do any of you remember him? Okay, yeah, which is a politically correct way of asking, how many of you are like really old? Because he's an old football player, right? So he's hanging out of this Sears delivery truck and he asks me, excuse me, sir, sir, does this road take me into Bethesda? Now at the time I lived in Walla Walla, Washington, and so I told him, I have no idea. I'm not from here. I'm from Washington. And he looked at me like, well, then... And then I said, no, 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 not, not Washington, D.C. I'm from Washington State. Oh, oh, okay. So he waited a while, and then I hear him again. Excuse me, sir, sir. Could you tell me, does this road take me into Bethesda? Once again, I said, I have no idea. I don't live here. I don't know. To which... He responded with another question that to this day still cracks me up. When I told him I have no clue, he said, well, what's your hunch? (laughs) My hunch? It's like, what difference does my hunch make? My hunch is not going to move Bethesda, but I knew... The answer he wanted to hear, so I just gave it to him. I said, well, my hunch is you just stay on this road about five, six miles up there. You're going to see this big sign with a big arrow that says, Bethesda, this way. Just follow the signs. You can't miss it. He's smiling real big, gold tooth glimmering in the sunshine. I moved over a few lanes in the traffic in case I gave him bad directions, which I probably did, but... I did not want him to squash me because he could have. A lot of organizations sort of go through their life with that same unpublished mentality. You know, we're not real clear where we're going. And as a church, I wonder aloud, could that happen? To us, where we just get fuzzy on the bullseye. What are we here to do? Are we clear on our mission as a church? Or are we kind of 
drifting. I wonder. So what is our mission? Our master and savior, Jesus, articulated it very clearly. Matthew 28, you see it there in your outline. Of course, we're familiar with this commission, aren't we? As Jesus was ascending, he gave his followers a very clear target. This is what I want you to be about. Go and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to teach them the kingdom way of life. And not to worry, Jesus promises, I will be with you even to the very end of the age. That's the bullseye. That's why we have a Seventh-day Adventist church. That's our mission, right? To share Jesus and then to teach people the Jesus way of life. Often referred to as the Great Commission. But did you know? Nowhere in Scripture do we find that phrase. The Great Commission. Because when you hear it like that, it almost sounds like a lofty, grandiose mission statement that belongs in some uh, framed placard on the wall that just sounds too grandiose for any of us common, ordinary people. And so then what we tend to do, and this is where we get into mission drift, we want to relegate evangelism, sharing Jesus, to the professionals to the smooth-talking tele-evangelists that we see. This morning during breakfast, I got an alert on my phone. No kidding. I don't know how this happened. But I get an alert that told me, Benny Hinn is now following you on Instagram. I have no clue as to where that came from because I don't follow him, but... You know, he seems to be one of those professionals. I don't know him. I don't follow him. But I'm often tempted to think, yeah, just let the professionals do the work of evangelism. We have a short video I want you to watch that speaks to this calling of the Great Commission, but they take the word great out of it and instead call it the Everyday Commission. Take a look. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission. You've heard the term. Did you know it's not from the Bible, though? It was conceived over 1,600 years after Jesus gave us the mission. There's one problem with it being called great. We think it's too big for us, that we're not really up for achieving great let me humbly suggest that it should be the Everyday Commission. In Greek, the word go literally means as you are going. 
You don't have to be a missionary and travel to the ends of the earth to accomplish this mission. The Everyday Commission isn't a program. It's a lifestyle. Making disciples can be done where you are, as you're living your everyday life, in your neighborhood, in your school, at your work. Also, Jesus did not live one way and then command us to live another way. Much of Jesus' own ministry happened as he was going. In Matthew 20, on the way, he told the disciples about how he would die. In Mark 8, on the way, he taught his disciples about who he is. In Luke 17, as he was going, he healed ten lepers. And in Luke 8, as Jesus was on his way, he healed a bleeding woman. You can live this mission as you are going also. As you order your coffee, you can be a light shining God's love. As you jog with a friend, you can share a bit of God's truth. As you're driving, you can teach your kids about mercy by letting someone merge ahead of you. Finally, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are not alone with this mission. Jesus will be right beside you, guiding you. That means you're not in charge of the outcome. God is. You're simply in charge of letting yourself be used by Him. Because it's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God can do through you. The Everyday Commission. Is it great? Yes. But you handle the everyday. Let God make it great. So the Everyday Commission is not about some series of meetings, a program. It's a lifestyle that God calls all of us, ordinary people, to engage in. And as we do this, see, we stay mission true as opposed to mission drifting, right? You can live this mission as you are going. If you have your outline there, you can fill in some of the blanks there. I love that line. You can fulfill this mission just every day, today, as you are going. And as we all embrace this mission statement and get clarity on what the bullseye looks like, we become a mission-true organization. Uh, As they point out, the authors of the book Mission Drift, they point out that every organization struggles with this. Every church, every business, everybody struggles with getting fuzzy on the mission. Being clear what success looks like, why we're here. I come from Ohio, and this time of year, everybody in my state seems to be really caught up with the NBA, the basketball championships. In case you don't know, they're coming up here in a few days uh, for the third year in a row. We've got the Cleveland Cavaliers, that's Ohio, against the Golden State Warriors. Now, last season, you may, if you follow basketball at all, remember that uh, the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers fired the head coach, David Blatt. Remember that? 
even though the coach had taken the Cavaliers to the championship the year before. Moreover, when he got fired, the Cavs were actually boasted of the best record in the Eastern Conference. And yet, he still lost his job. And so at the press conference, the general manager explained to the reporters why he felt like he needed to do that. He made this statement. He says, we make every decision by answering one simple question. Are we doing everything we can to bring championships to Northeast Ohio? Every decision we make helps us to answer that one simple question. Are we going to bring championships to Ohio? See, it's not enough to have the best record during the regular season. It's not enough to get to the championship. That's not acceptable because that's not our mission. Our whole mission is to ultimately win championships. So what would it look like if in this conference, every decision we make as churches would put up against the bigger question that asks, are we doing everything we can to fulfill the everyday commission in the Carolina Conference? And again, it just gets a little fuzzy because so much of what we do in churches, and I'm sure this is true of your local church, so much of what we do is really good, and yes, it's absolutely kind of related to the overall mission of what Jesus has called us to be about, but we lose focus on how it actually helps us to answer that question, how does it help us to stay on mission in the Carolina Conference. In my local church in Kettering, Ohio, we do lots of amazing things. And it wouldn't even be a bad thing if we wanted to change our mission because these are good things that we do. For example, we have an unbelievable Dorcas Society. We call it the Good Neighbor House. They offer medical care, optical care, dental care, dentures, to the underserved and underinsured and the working poor of our community. It is a full-fledged, healthy diet pantry. It's also a big clothing bank. I mean, they do an amazing ministry in our community. I love the ministry of the Good Neighbor House. And of course, I think we need to continue it so long as we're clear that that is not our ultimate mission. Another example, in our local church in Kettering, we are known as having a wonderful venue for classical music. And so we regularly open up our doors on a regular basis to a lot of the different musical groups in the community. So Dayton Box Society performs there regularly. We also host Miami Symphony Valley Orchestra, the Kettering Children's Choir, a host of musical ensembles and groups and orchestras. They all love to use our church building for the acoustics and for the price. We don't even charge them. So, of course, they love the 
the church building to do their concerts. And we love having their there. But, see, ultimately, we need to remind ourselves in my local church that this is not the ultimate mission. If that's what we put as the bullseye, then we should just do that. It's a good thing to be the best concert hall in the Miami Valley where we live. We could do that. But it's not the mission of our founding father, Jesus Christ, who said, here's your mission. Reach lost people and teach them the kingdom way of life. And everything we do has to be measured against that simple question, is that what we are doing? Or are we drifting just a little bit off course? Because again, you start drifting a little bit, you can end up somewhere you never anticipated. In that book I referenced earlier, Mission Drift, he gives two examples of companies very, very similar. They started some years ago. The first organization is called the Christian Children's Fund. Started back in 1938 by a Presbyterian minister by the name of Dr. Calvin Clark. He asked a friend of his who happened to be a missionary in China this question. Is the church doing everything possible to help alleviate the poverty and suffering of orphans? His missionary friend responded, you are the church. Why don't you do something about this? And so Dr. Clark did. He started the Christian Children's Fund. And he began this innovative approach of actually connecting donors directly to individual children. Now, the organization flourished. It grew. In the 80s and the 90s, you may remember their long infomercials where Sally Struthers, any of you remember Sally Struthers, would talk about individual children and then appeal for donors to sponsor these children. Well, in 1994, Christian Children's Fund served nearly 2 million children. Budget over $100 million. 2011, Forbes magazine called it one of the 100 largest charities in our country. Very successful. But then, by the 1990s, very interesting, their identity was challenged. One of the former board members, Thomas Naylor, publicly made this statement. This organization has nothing to do with Christianity. It's called Christian Children's Fund. And here you have one of the board members saying, that's misleading. To call it a Christian organization is not right because they are not innately Christian. A decade later, a charity watchdog organization issued a donor alert warning that this particular organization, quote, is misleading many Christian donors because of its marketing as a Christian organization. They claim to be Christian, but they had drifted from the founder's original vision. And while he, Dr. Clark, 
saw this as very much a Christian organization. Here you have now watchdog organizations saying, no, that's misleading. Leading the president, Ann Goddard, to acknowledge as much. She made this statement. An organization changes slowly. And then all of a sudden you realize the changes have happened so much that you need to step back and see if you are putting out the name that really reflects who you are. Then she went on to explain how because of this and how they had drifted from the mission of the original founder doesn't mean it's a bad new mission. It's just different. They changed their name. Now they are known as Child Fund International. Now, a very similar organization started just a few years later, again, by a Presbyterian Minister Everett Swanson. He visited orphaned children in the war-torn country of Korea. While he was there, he asked the same question. What is the church doing for these orphans? What in the name of Christ can we do? One Sunday morning, he happened to be walking in the streets of Seoul, praying for all of these hungry children that he saw just everywhere when he noticed some police officers scooping up piles of rags on a street corner. Upon closer examination, he realized these weren't just rags. These were orphans. These were children who had died that night. And here he saw policemen scooping them up and throwing the corpses in garbage bags. And Pastor Swanson said, this is not right. For God's sake, we've got to do something about it. And so he started an organization called Compassion International. The express mission statement when they started the organization was to care for the physical and spiritual needs of children. Today, Compassion International serves over 1.3 million children across 26 different countries. For 20 years, Wes Stafford was the president of the organization He shares this story. He writes, When I was the director of development at Compassion back in the 1980s, I brought in outside experts to study our marketing and donor base. I asked, what do we need to do to grow? Here's their answer. Well, you've got the best name in the business, Compassion International. Who doesn't want to be a part of something called Compassion? But... You've got this Jesus stuff mixed up in there. Not everyone who is compassionate cares about this Jesus that you just keep putting on every piece of promotional material that you have. Our advice is to really raise up the name compassion and soft sell all the Jesus stuff. Then you watch what happens. 
Stafford writes, we thought for 10 seconds and then we said no. Not now, not ever. We are not going to drift from the mission of our founder to care for the physical and spiritual needs of children. In the book Mission Drift, the authors write on the surface, Christian Children's Fund and Compassion International look like twins. They were founded just 14 years apart. Both were started by Presbyterian ministers, each with a passion for helping poor children. Both founders had missionary friends who encouraged them to start their organizations. Both were created to help children orphaned after wars in Asia. Both use child sponsorship to fuel their missions. They're just twins. Then they go on to say, Today, both are among the 100 largest nonprofits in the country, but they now look radically different. One child fund stripped Christian from its name. The other, Compassion International, beats to the same heartbeat as its founder. So see, our local churches, we can do a lot of really, really good things. But we have to just keep coming back to that question. Do we beat with the heartbeat of our original founder, Jesus Christ, who challenged his church, go, baptize people, and teach them how to obey everything that I have taught you. Nothing wrong. Even changing one's identity, if that's what you want to do. But, don't call it the church, because this is the mission Christ has given His church. Share Him. Back to the book. They make this statement, and you can see it there on your outline if you want to fill in some of the words. Mission drift unfolds slowly. Like a current, it carries organizations away from their core purpose and identity. It's like a current carrying organizations away from their core purpose and identity. The pressures of mission drift, listen to this, are guaranteed. It is the default, the autofill. It will happen unless we are focused and actively preventing it. So how can we as a church, as a denomination, stay focused in actively preventing mission drift? Well, let's go back to the early Christian church. Just as Jesus shared this mission to his followers, let's go back. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. We find this story when Jesus had said these things. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus is being ascended back to his Father. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is going to come again. And no doubt you've heard the expression, sometimes Christians can be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good, right? And I think this is where we get that expression from. Where the two messengers say to the followers of Jesus, hey, what are you doing? Standing here looking up into the heavens. You got work to do. He gave you a mission. Now go and accomplish that mission. So what do they do? First thing, notice, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James and Simon, Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were what? Notice this, and you might underline it there in your outline, devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. First thing they do in fulfilling the Great Commission, they gather and they devote themselves to prayer. And what I so much appreciate about the camp meeting here this year is not just the theme to share him because I think that summarizes the whole mission of our denomination. I love that, but also the equal emphasis on prayer. I would encourage you to go to Kelly's breakout sessions on prayer this afternoon. Excellent stuff. Devoted themselves to prayer. The other day I was in a meeting at Kettering College and Uh, Somebody was telling me about how in her church, she's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but in her church, they have been reading through Max Lucado's book, Before Amen. It's a book about prayer. By the end of the meeting, I had already downloaded it to my Kindle. I wanted to read the story that she referenced. Max Lucado tells about getting an invitation to speak at John Maxwell's church at the time in San Diego, California. And Max Lucado said, I will come under one condition, that you will give me the best advice you have for building a healthy church. Listen now to what Lucado writes. John was quick to answer. Prayer. He specifically suggested that I recruit 120 prayer partners who would commit to pray daily for the church, the pastor, and his family. Max went back to his church. First thing he did, he recruited 120 prayer partners. Six months later, Max bumped into John Maxwell. He shared what had happened in the past six months. Listen to this. Lakato says, We had broken every weekly attendance record twice. We had finished the year with our highest ever average church attendance. We had finished the year well over budget. We had nearly doubled our staff and elders. We had witnessed several significant healings. 
Church antagonism was at an all-time low. Church unity was at an all-time high. This is what happens when people galvanize around a specific mission. And everybody's clear on what the target looks like. What we are here to do. Why we exist as a church. And Lucato reported, we can't even believe what God's been doing in our local church. And then he concludes by writing this. You can fill in the blanks again there in your outline. As we redouble our commitment to pray, God redoubles his promise to bless. Did you get that? As we redouble our commitment to pray, God redoubles his promise to bless. So here's my challenge today. I would love to recruit 120 prayer partners on behalf of the Carolina Conference. And I'm asking you to pray specifically every day for these same things. I want you to pray for your local church. I want you to pray by name for the pastor and every member of his or her family. Okay? And then I want you to pray every day that God would help you to see how to fulfill the everyday commission wherever you live, whatever you do that day, to fulfill the everyday commission. Okay? So those three things for the local church, for the pastor, and that God would help you to fulfill the everyday commission on that day. I recruited 120 prayer partners at my local church. Over the past six months, we have seen amazing things happening. And we have seen growth as we never have since I have been there. God is blessing. We actually got over 200 prayer partners who are praying every day. I put it into my uh, into my. Uh, phone, thank you, (laughs) into my phone so I get an alert every day at 9 a.m. Pray. Uh, And so I just stop whatever I'm doing and I pray for all of the pastoral team and for their children and for each pastor by name and I pray for our church and then I just pray, God, today, use me to fulfill the everyday commission. I understand this is not a task relegated to the professionals who really know how to preach and heal and all of that, but rather just as I'm going throughout my day, give me opportunity and give me the eyes to see and the heart to respond to those opportunities, okay? So, if you would be willing to sign on for the next six months, put it in your phone, get an alert, do whatever you need to do to remind yourself at the same time to pray for these three things, I'm going to ask you to just stand now, and then I'm going to pray a prayer of anointing and blessing on you. Father God, we do not make this commitment lightly, but rather... We stand here committed 
to staying focused on the mission that you have given to each one of us. We want to be a part of what you are doing. We want to be a part, God, of your grand redemptive narrative. We want to share Jesus. We want to teach people the kingdom of life principles. But God, we cannot do this in our own strength. It is not by our strength. It is certainly not by our power. But solely by your grace and by your power in us. And so God, just as the disciples, after you were ascended, just as they gathered, committing themselves, devoting themselves to prayer, so we stand here together. Your body, the expression of Christ on this earth, we stand here together committing ourselves to praying daily for this conference, for our local church, that we would stay focused on the mission that you have given to us. And God, all we can do is just surrender ourselves to this mission and ask that you would unleash your Holy Spirit upon this. Bless this movement that you have started, this Adventist movement, God that we would live faithfully to the calling that you have placed upon us. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit be unleashed in our lives, and may we see the outpouring, the latter rain power of God in our churches, in our lives. Is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.